The rest of us are in Acts chapter 5 in a very unusual passage. So I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. In 2012, the Wall Street Journal published an article by Dan Ariely entitled, Why We Lie. Ariely is a professor of behavior economics at Duke University. He and his research team did a massive study to understand why people lie, cheat, and steal. Their research included over 30,000 people in the United States, Western Europe, Turkey, Israel, and China. They went to college campuses and gave students 20 math puzzles, and they were given five minutes to get as many answers as possible. And they were paid for every correct answer. Um, On the average, the students could get four right answers out of 20 in their five minutes. Then the uh, experiment was changed just a bit. And on this occasion, when the students took the test, they were told to grade their own papers and then to go to the back of the room and have their tests put in a shredder. And when that happened, the scores went from four to six. But the students didn't know that the shredder didn't shred their papers. And the shredders got the right answers, and they were answering two more than they had actually gotten right. They continued to get about four right. Over of, oh, the... Of over the 30,000 participants, there were 12 big cheaters in the group that cheated big time, and their total take was $150 for the 12 big cheaters. They didn't get paid a lot for their getting the right answers. But what they found were 18,000 small cheaters out of the 30,000, and the small cheaters were, only took about a dollar or two above what their test scores uh, actually were. But that totaled $36,000 of research money for the small cheaters. I really concluded that most dishonesty happens among ordinary people who think of themselves as basically honest. In Acts chapter 5, we meet two dishonest People. And I want to read the Acts 5, 1 through 11 section of our passage this morning. So turn with me and uh, follow as I read it. And here's the case. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came, not knowing what had happened, 
Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dared, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And so there's the only case of two people slain in the spirit in the Bible, by the way, right there. So this is it. If, you, if that's important to you, here it is. Verses 1 through 11, uh, we see that these two people were dying to impress others. Dying to impress others. The case is verses 1 and 2. So we go back to, we introduce to Ananias and Sapphira. Um, together, uh, they sold the piece of property. This is all we know about Ananias and Sapphira, these 11 verses. Not too much. They, they were property owners, and they sold a piece of property. Maybe they had more, or maybe this was all they had. And uh, notice it says they also sold a piece of property. Kind of a significant word there, because that just reminds us of the context of this. In Acts uh, chapter 5, we go back uh, to chapter 4. I'm going to go back to verse 32 and follow along. Remember, this is what we talked about last week. All the believers were one in heart and mind. So there's this great unity in the church. Um, A submission to the lordship of Christ. People were just in awe of the movement of God. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they, but they shared everything they had. It wasn't like they were commanded to do this. This was just like a response and submission to the lordship of Christ. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace, that's God's favor, was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses, just time to time, it wasn't everybody did this, it was just some. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. This was the way they gave to the church. I don't know that they needed the apostles' feet, but that's the metaphor used to describe this giving to the church. And... These gifts were distributed to anyone who had need. Not to everyone, but to those who had need. And then remember, we were introduced to Joseph. And Joseph is going to be introduced uh, for the whole book of Acts right here. But he's kind of a significant player. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. So we know he's a Jewish man. He's from the tribe of Levi. That's the priestly tribe. But he's not from Israel. He's from an island whom the apostles called Barnabas, so that later the apostles will name him this, which means son of encouragement. He sold a piece, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here is Barnabas, this example of generosity to the church. And now we have, in contrast to that, we meet Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So just remember that no one told them that they needed to do this. They weren't commanded to do this. This was totally a voluntary thing. Um, And 
Apparently, Ananias was so impressed and so moved by the generosity of other believers who were willing to sell their property and give it all to the church. And of course, he'd just seen Barnabas do this. He's so moved by this, he wants to be involved. He wants people to view him like that. And uh, he'd like to impress people with his generosity. Um, But when he did, he kept back part of it. And his wife was in on it from the beginning. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money. Verses 3 through 5, the confrontation. Then Peter said, so somehow Peter becomes aware of this. I'm guessing it was sort of some supernatural intuition from the Holy Spirit. The Peter, Peter said, Ananias, how is that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Um, a lot of information in this passage. We could probably break this down and spend the rest of our time on it. Um, but Ananias has been tempted uh, not only humanly in his own flesh, in his own human nature, in his own desire to get ahead and to be greedy. But he's also right in the uh, middle of very powerful spiritual warfare. Uh, The enemy, Satan, is not happy about what's happening in the church. That the church is with one heart and one mind, and the kingdom of God is just moving ahead. And so Satan tries to bring this problem within the church. So We've already had opposition outside of the church. Remember the, how the Sadducees ordered them not to preach the gospel in the name of Jesus any longer? And now inside the church, we've got this huge, we've got this sin problem. And the enemy is right in the middle of it. And Peter says, Why is, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? And, and the idea is there is that Satan has influenced him. Satan has gained some kind of control in this uh, decision he's made and that he lied to the Holy Spirit. So when he lied to the apostles, when he came forward and lied to the leaders of the church, Peter is saying, you lied to the Holy Spirit because the church is a body of Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in his church. So when you lied to the leaders of the church, you were lying to the Holy Spirit. He was deceitful to the church. And then Peter reminds him, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Did anybody make you do this? This was your property. Um, Nobody asked you to do this. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? This was your money. You can do whatever you want with it. You don't have to give any of it to the church. Or you can just choose to give a small portion to the church. It was up to you. It was your call. But because he wanted to impress others, and because he wanted to look like he was this great Christian example, he lied, and he was greedy, and he kept back some money for himself, but he wanted it to appear that he was all in. Peter says, what made you think of such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. It wasn't just fraud to the church, but it was a lie to the Holy Spirit. And please notice, this is a significant uh, little observation in the book of Acts, that for Peter, 
To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. And, you know, it's easy for us to look back and say, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, this is a very powerful clue uh, to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, and the Apostle Peter was very clear about this. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. This was an attention getter for the church. Word passed quickly. Someone had lied to God and fallen over dead. Uh, A great fear, the fear of God, a reverential fear, a reminder of God's awesome power and his knowledge. This is an all-knowing God. And even though humans maybe didn't understand what was happening, it was a God thing. And Peter got in on it, and Peter spoke for God on this occasion. The consequence, verse 6, and then young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried it out and buried him. they always, the Jewish people always wanted to bury within the first 24 hours. And on occasions when they were in the heat, that burial happened much faster. This is a very fast burial. Um, so, so much for Ananias. He lied, he died, and he's buried. Then the collaboration, verses 7 and 8, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She was like the only one who didn't know what had happened. Peter asked her, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yeah, that's the price. See, Peter gave her a chance to speak truth, to tell the truth, to to be asked, to be put on the spot, and to come forward. But she was in collusion with her husband. She was in full support of the late Ananias. She was willing to deceive the church and to lie to the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 and 10, the consequence, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in. They buried her too. She lied, she died, and she was buried. And then we come to verse 11. By now I'm struggling for seas. And so we have the great, we have the consternation. I did pretty well. But if you look up consternation in the dictionary, it means a sudden, alarming amazement or dread that results in utter confusion or dismay. I think there was some consternation here. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You see, back in Acts 4.32, the church had experienced this tremendous unity. Jesus prayed for unity. They'd be one in mind in uh, John 17, if you remember that. And Acts 4.32, it was with one heart and one mind. The church had it so together. They were so aligned with Jesus Christ. And uh, the church was growing. The gospel was being shared. There was extreme generosity And that now has been threatened by sin. And God intervenes quickly. And Ananias and Sapphira are removed from the church just like that. Within hours of each other, and they are buried. They are out of the picture. 
God has got people's attention. Here is an example. This doesn't happen every day. What if it did? What if every time somebody in his church lied, there was a death? Probably get people's attention quickly. It did here. Great fear sees the church. God really is holy, and he really wants his children to be holy. So let's look at some lessons from this section before we go on. Uh, the first one is worrying about what others think can lead to disastrous choices. Uh, that's probably obvious. In this case is Ananias and Sapphira. They made a poor choice. Didn't, you know, just a little white lie, right? And uh, it was a disaster for them. And God called them into account. And uh, he took them home early. I think they were believers. I don't know. We don't have enough information to know if they truly were born again. I'm guessing they were. They just wanted to have a little for themselves, a little notoriety. And God took them home early. Second uh, lesson, God values honesty and integrity for all. Just a little reminder for us. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11, we have that passage. This goes back to Moses, 15th century before Christ. So this has like been through all of the Bible, and, and this passage is uh, repeated in the New Testament. Uh, God says, do not steal. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not lie or bear false witness. That's a, one of the commandments. Do not deceive one another. Don't try to pull, put something over on each other. It almost sounds like the Apostle Paul. I think maybe he repeats that. The point is, God wants his people to be truthful. Another passage is uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. So the book of Proverbs, 10th century before Christ, this is a, the book of wisdom. You want to be a wise person? Pay attention here. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, meaning being pride, prideful. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. Next slide. A false witness. And that's, that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They lied, and they were false witnesses. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. In uh, John eight forty four, you, re- you may remember Jesus said that uh, the devil, the enemy, Satan, is a liar. When we tell lies, when we... Tell, say things that aren't true, we are operating in his realm. We are operating with his method. It represents him. Even small, when we know we're not telling the truth, we're representing the enemy. In John chapter 14, verse 6, um, Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He revealed truth. That's his character. And uh, when we tell the truth, we're operating more like Jesus. The third uh, lesson is that God intentionally disciplines his children. God intentionally disciplines his children. We're going to pass that. Third lesson. In uh, the Bible, the concept of discipline is that of training 
especially the concept of child training. You know, we have kids and we want them to grow up and mature and they don't come into the world, you know, perfectly formed with perfectly developed ability to make choices and we help them. And we do it ideally because we love them. We want them to grow. We want them to develop. Um, Sometimes we give them lots of instructions. Sometimes we put boundaries around them. Sometimes uh, we have to be firm in our discipline. And so does God with his children. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. The writer of Hebrews says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? This is a word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son. So now we're going back to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So sometimes God's going to discipline his children. And it's, sometimes it makes life hard. Sometimes God is refining our character. And it has nothing to do with mistakes we've made. Sometimes he's just allowing this life to refine us. He's training us, okay? So don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Next slide. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Um, He allows his children sometimes to go through suffering, and he loves them, and he's growing them, and he's developing them. This isn't a fun one. It's just true. Just like your kids at times have to learn what no is. And it's for good to teach people what no means. That you can't do everything you want. You can't have everything that you want. Okay. uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. This is just a continuation. And... uh, Right before this, the writer of Hebrews brings in how our fathers disciplined and they did the best they could, but they weren't perfect. Uh, He says, verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. That's a great reminder. God is always doing, instructing us for good, helping us in order that we may share in his holiness because God is moving us to growth. And become more like him. He is a holy God. No discipline seems pleasant. Got an amen to that. All right. No discipline seems to be pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Good comes from God's discipline and instruction. And sometimes that discipline is hard circumstances that we have to live with in this life. Not because we've done something wrong. Sometimes discipline comes because we've disobeyed. It's very clear, clearly, what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. So this is a hard this is an unusual case. It's a hard case. 1 Corinthians 5. I gotta write a paper in seminary on this, so I just lived in this for about a semester. Um, So the situation in Corinth is there's a lot of immorality around the church. And here is a young man, apparently a believer. I don't know how young he is, but he was sleeping with his stepmom. That's a problem. And that uh, basically was incest as well as adultery. And the church did nothing about it. In Acts chapter 5, 
when believers sinned, on this one occasion, God took them out immediately. Peter stood up and addressed the, the situation immediately. There was action. And uh, in Corinth, nothing happened. And Paul heard about it. Months have passed, and Paul heard about it. He says, so here's what I want you to do, church. When you have a congregational meeting, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, I'm not going to be there in body, but I'm going to be there in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan. Those are harsh words. Hand this man, the man who sinned, who committed incest and adultery, handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's why I think this guy's a believer. He's a disobedient child of God. And uh, what Paul is saying is kick him out of the church because in the body of Christ, in the church, there is safety and protection. And if this person isn't going to repent and turn back to God, then get him outside. And that's what he means by turn him over to Satan. Because Satan is, rules the world. Uh, the church is Jesus's. And Satan right now has reign in the world. And, and Paul is saying, get him outside. Just let Satan continue to have his way. Let him have his body. Let him die. Let him just out of his own mistakes, face physical death. We don't want him in the church. We don't want him, uh, unless he's going to repent, we want him outside of the church. But his spirit be saved on the day of redemption. He won't deserve it, he didn't deserve it, and he never would have anyway. That's a case of a disobedient, in my understanding, the case of a disobedient believer and what God asks his church to do. Excommunicate. That's what this is about. Kick him out. Excommunicate. Remove him from the church. Okay, I'm going to go to another difficult passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 31. So this, the case here is communion. Today's communion Sunday, by the way. So in the case of communion in Corinth, people were abusing their privilege to worship with the Lord's table or communion, the bread and the cup. And the early church often had a meal together. And what would happen is some people were getting there early to the meal before others got there. And they were drinking the wine and eating the food. In fact, they were becoming drunk before the rest of the church showed up. And they were kind of, um, you know, eating all the food and not leaving food for the others when they came. And the Apostle Paul has some very harsh words for these people. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So, Paul is very clear. There, this, there's a sin here that's unique, and it's, uh, it's a really big deal. Okay, Verse 28, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink of the cup. And we, we talk about this when we take communion, that before we take time to share, we ought to examine our own. It's self-examination. You don't have to confess your sins to me. Self-examination, you need to be right with God. Or don't take communion, okay? And so Paul tells us there, 
before we take verse 29, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. There's a danger if you're sloppy about your attitude and communion, you're bringing a judgment on yourself. Verse 30, that is why first century, many among you are weak physically. Are, some of you are sick, physical ailment in the early church. And some have fallen asleep. And that's a nice way to talk about a believer's death. Because of how they've dealt with communion. Sloppy attitude. He says, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. This is a judgment on believers. A discipline on believers that included death. It wasn't about losing their salvation. If Ananias and Sapphira were believers, I don't think they lost their salvation. I don't think the man in Corinth would have lost his salvation. I don't think you're talking about people here losing their salvation. I think you're talking about God just wants to get disobedient people out of the way, and he will take them out if he needs to. He will remove people if he needs to. I don't know when that happens. I don't know when God disciplines his children. I have seen, in my opinion, in one case where God removed a young man who had been involved in our youth group and uh, had been very popular and uh, very well liked, had big influence, and he got kind of far from God, and um, he lost his life. And God got a lot of people's attention through that, and a lot of people came to faith in Christ as a result of his it was just like his fear came over people of God takes this stuff seriously. I can't prove any of that. That's just my opinion. Okay, last uh, lesson here. Watch out for greed. Watch out for greed. It was greed that influenced Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus warned us of this, Luke twelve fifteen. He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Watch out for greed. He just warns us. You know, greed is wanting more and more of the stuff we have enough of already. Greed is just wanting more. I can remember uh, sitting back and doing my budget several years ago and uh, just had this stress about my income and my expenses. I kept adding them up and the expenses kept coming out too much. And I came to the conclusion, if I just had $300 more a month, I could be content. And then I got $300 more a month. And then I just seemed to spend another $300 more a month. I learned a lot about myself. It was about, am I okay with what God has provided for me? Can I be content? Can I be satisfied with what God has given to me? Watch out for greed. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, uh, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction. I think that happened to Ananias and Sapphira. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money's not bad. Being wealthy is not bad. It's putting money and stuff first. And God expects wealthy people to be generous people. 
Um, let's go on to number two. This is a short section. Uh, we kind of pick back up on the church. The church is continuing to reach others, verses 12 through 16. The miracles continue, verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Remember, that's the east side of, they're in the temple court. The temple court is very large. And uh, the temple, they're on the east side where there, there's all these pillars. And it was a great place to hang out and get out of the, sh- get out of the sun. And um, God was advancing his kingdom through the apostles. God was doing miracles through the apostles. And they just kept meeting. Verse 13, the fear of God. No one else dared join them. There was this great fear in the city of Jerusalem, and there were the believers in, in the temple, and they kept meeting, and they kept worshiping, and their miracles kept happening. And then on the people who hadn't gone into the temple, there was a great fear. They didn't know, what if, what if God judges me for sin? They didn't know what to do, and so they just some of the people just stayed away. Verse 14, the growth of the church. Nevertheless, more and more women, men and women, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. God's work didn't stop. God's kingdom continued to advance. It was a movement of God. Uh, There was nothing stopping this. Uh, More and more people were putting their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation from the penalty of their sin. The last count of the church was 5,000 men with women and children above that. And the church is continuing to grow. We don't have a count here. It is larger and larger, the impact of the kingdom of God. The miracles continue, verses 15 and 16. As a result, people brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that Notice this, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they pass by. God was moving very powerfully. This all started in Acts 3. Remember that? The man who was born lame and they brought to the temple and Peter healed, healed him. One miracle, one man. And then there was the opposition from the leaders, the Sadducees. And now this God has just broke open his moving among his people. And it's not because these are such great people. This is a God thing happening. Uh, and people uh, brought sick into the streets. Crowds, verse 16, crowds gathered from towns around Jerusalem. So this now has gone outside of the temple into the city streets. And the crowds are coming from other towns, and they're coming into Jerusalem, and they're just wanting to find the apostles. They just, there's a God thing happening here. They want to get in on it. And, and they brought the, their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. This is amazing. The church is on the move. The Holy Spirit is on the move. This is what God is doing. And um, people were were even wanting 
Peter's shadow to fall on them as they pass by. And I take that to mean, I think that's kind of a superstitious uh, response on the people. There was a kind of a first century belief about the impact of somebody's shadow on you. And um, I think it was just the power of God above and beyond what people were were thinking here. Uh, And there was a purpose to the whole thing. It was all about advancing the kingdom of God. This was not about manipulating God to do things that they wanted him to do. God was doing the things that he wanted to do. It was about his kingdom. So let's, we have some lessons here. First lesson, sometimes God works miracles when people are very humble and have a deep respect for him. There was this fear of God, there, this great humility among the people. And uh, we, we read that in, with the church, there was one heart and one mind. Sometimes God works miracles. But I just want to remind us, we never can manipulate the circumstances to get God to do what we want God to do. God is going to do his agenda. It's about his kingdom. He's the king. He wants to advance his kingdom one life at a time. Second lesson, God can use the failure of believers to draw attention to his righteousness It's exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And that had a big influence on the whole city. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, I was uh, very impressed by a pastor in our church. And he was highly gifted, young guy, um, very popular. I remember he was asked, he's a pastor in a Bible church in downtown Dallas. And he was asked to emcee the governor's ball in Texas. And so, um, sometimes this kind of went to his head. Um, I remember coming to church one Sunday. I met with this guy on Friday afternoons. One Friday, I came to church after school. I came to the church to meet with him, and his door was locked. He wasn't there, and uh, there was nobody around. On Sunday, we came to church, and... um, the senior pastor got up, and this is a larger church, and the senior pastor got up, and he spent a, the whole hour telling us what had happened, and there had been an affair, and it had been somebody I had seen come in for counseling. Um, and it, it was just a really sad, sad. And how it impacted the church and how it impacted me, it was just this great sense of grief, this great sense of mourning. It was a great sense, somebody has died here. But it would have been better if he had died. And here was this leader that impacted so many people and was so well-liked. And he was unfaithful to his wife. And now he's gone because he can't lead anymore. And we can't follow a leader like that. It was a great sense of mourning. Um, Number three, uh, God uses miracles to point people to what he's doing. That may be kind of an understatement. He was moving big time in Jerusalem, advancing his kingdom. Number four, God uses miracles to authenticate his message and his messengers. You've probably heard me say that many times. He did it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Miracles brought attention to the apostles. People wanted to come and find the apostles. 
The apostles were God's spokesmen. Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to tell the truth about who I am, what Jesus has done. It was bringing attention to them so people would listen. And it also authenticated their message that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. And those miracles got people's attention. Last lesson for today. How you live today matters. I bet you already knew that. I just want to remind us of how important that is. How we live today really does matter just because God doesn't zap us for making a mistake. We sometimes presume upon God or compare ourselves with other, other Christians. Well, I'm not as bad as such and such, you know. At least they're worse than I am. Okay, so what? Um, let, let, let me remind us of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And this is to Christians. This is to believers only. This isn't about... Um, there's another judgment coming for those who have never placed their faith in Christ. This is for Christians, okay? Everybody in the line... that's going to be at the judgment seat of Christ has experienced a new birth. For we must all, believers, the church, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, God gave us this passage for a motivation I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just wanting to think clearly. How we live today matters. One day we give an account. One day I'll stand before Jesus. I've always imagined it. It's going to be like a video screen. This is my imagination. A video screen. And my life's going to go before me in a fraction of a second. And I am going to know every time I dishonored God. I'm going to know the things I have forgotten about tried to forget about. And I'm going to know what pleased God. This, people who stand before the judgment seat of Christ are going to go to heaven. Everybody's going to be in heaven, but you're going to know. And we're going to, I think I'm going to have some regrets. Gee, I wish I hadn't have done that. That was stupid. But we're going to know. And Jesus is going to let us know. He's, that's only justice. He, he's the just judge. He's And he still gives us grace. Okay. uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Next week, we're going to go on and finish the chapter. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. And God has a plan for his church. A periodic review. Self-evaluation. You and God. Uh, God is looking for honest people. God is looking for people who don't practice deception before others or him. And um, when when we come to communion, here's what scripture says. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. This is why we take communion. Verse 23, the apostle Paul writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the bread and the cup, it's really a testimony of how central the death of Jesus is to the church. The death of Jesus is to us. Because the bread is a symbol that represents his body, and the cup is a symbol that represents his blood. He gave himself for us. He died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sins. And God's plan for the church is, you know what? That we never forget this, that we remember. Do this in remembrance of him. And we need to stop and think, remember, you know what? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Sometimes I just let that slip away and forget. And I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve my sins forgiven. But God, by his grace, has made this possible. And I just need to remember that. It's by grace. And I just need to remember, thank you, God. It's so easy to take for granted. Thank you, God. And so um, we're going to just take a minute here and... and, uh, As I pray, those who are going to prepare communion, I invite you to come. And I want to pray and and give us an opportunity just to reflect before God. So let's bow in prayer. The scripture tells us to examine our lives. And so just uh, as you sit there, just silently before God, ask him to show you if there's anything that you need to confess to him. You can do that privately. Is there an attitude, something you've done that's dishonored God and you just haven't dealt with it? You haven't told God you're sorry about it? You haven't confessed your sin to God? Do that just silently, privately. And just ask God to search your heart. Lord, may you remind us that um, this isn't just a once a month kind of thing to do, but you've designed it so that when the whole church comes together, we need to be on the same page spiritually. Thank you for that reminder. Remind us throughout the week to keep short accounts with you. Thank you for the sin that we've confessed here this morning. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us of all unrighteousness. And I thank you that we have that promise, and I thank you that it's true, and I, I thank you that we can say that that sin is forgiven. You have forgiven, you have cleansed, you have purified. Right now, we want to thank you for the bread that's a symbol of the body of Jesus. We want to thank you for the cup that is a symbol of the blood that was shed in our behalf. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that we're saved by grace, not by human effort, because we would never make it.
May we walk humbly with you just one day at a time. May we honor you with our lives. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. So, uh, when you are ready, 